something outside. What is that? Direct Radio. This is your host, Gunnar Monson. Along with me today, as always, is my good friend Shane Corson. Shane, how are you? I'm doing well, Gunnar. Glad to be here. Looking forward to the show. Yeah, me too. Our guest today is Mr. David George Gordon, and David is the author of the Sasquatch Seekers Field Manual, Using Citizen Science to Uncover North America's Most Elusive Creature. He's an accomplished science communicator, and he's spoken at the American Museum of Natural History, the Philadelphia Academy of Sciences, Yale University, the Smithsonian, as well as Ripley's Believe It or Not Museums in Hollywood and Times Square. He lives in Seattle, not far from the heart of Sasquatch country. David, welcome to Monster X Radio. Hey, thank you for having me on your show. You bet. For those listeners, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got interested in the Sasquatch subject? You know, I'm a professional science writer, and I've been doing that for a long time. My first book on Sasquatch was written in 1992. It was called The Field Guide to the Sasquatch, and it was a small book. It was about 60 pages. And it pretty much summarized what we knew about Sasquatch in 1992. Um, More recently, I was asked if I was interested in doing a second book. And, of course, I said yes. And my second book, The Sasquatch Secrets Field Manual, uh, was published by Mountaineers Press. They're uh, uh, mostly a, a publisher that does, like, hiking guides and trail guides and things like that. They wanted an outdoors book on this topic. So actually, when I started working on it very early on, I realized what I wanted to do was focus on getting people to be better observers and better uh, recorders of nature so that when they actually did see something that looked like a Sasquatch or something like that, they could actually record it in such ways that scientists and others would actually accept it as something that could add to our understanding rather than something they could easily blow away. So that's pretty much how I got into all of this. I'm lucky, by the way, that in 1992, there were people like Peter Green, and, excuse me, John Green and Peter Byrne and some of the sort of the old school uh, Sasquatch people who I got to hang out with then. I'm actually now just starting to introduce myself to some of the more new guard people like Jeff Meldrum come onto the scene over the last 10 or so years in terms of their awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so David, you've been, you've been at this. I mean, you've been at this for you know uh, a long time, and and obviously have, have, uh, uh, I imagine looked into a lot of reports. But you know, you wrote the, you wrote the book. But what what really specifically launched you into this uh, into the, the the subject matter of Sasquatch? Was it uh, did you have a, a, a fascination as a child? Was it uh, in search of you know shows like that? Uh, what really launched you or intrigued you about the subject? Well, living in Washington State, Sasquatch is kind of like our state animal. In fact, there was actually a uh, a bill that, that was going through the legislature recently uh, to make Sasquatch our state cryptid, and it actually did not happen. But, you know, there's been sort of a long history of those uh, Sasquatch sightings and people who've been searching for Sasquatch in uh, the Northwest, but primarily in Washington State. So it's a subject that's always been fascinating to me. I'm fascinated with anything about nature where humans and uh, wildlife actually interact. 
So I've actually written books on everything from uh, logging elephants in Thailand, uh, whale watching, all sorts of stuff that involves sort of our relationship with nature, the natural world. And when you get into that, Sasquatch is kind of like the big kahuna of that topic. You know, you can't find anything that gets as much of an emotional response as when we're talking about a creature that may or may not be related to human beings. Mm-hmm. No, very, very good points there. <laughs> and it does, it can get uh, very heated, especially nowadays with uh, the use of social media. It seems like everybody's got an opinion or, or, or has seen something <laughs> and it can get uh, rather heated. And, and, and David, I know recently you, you've done a couple of, uh, I believe, local lectures here in the state of Washington. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm actually a uh, – there's an organization called Humanities Washington, and I'm one of their speakers for this year and last year as well. So Humanities Washington is a nonprofit organization that makes people like me available to speak at civic organizations or public libraries, any place where people can get in for free. Man, Ape, or Myth is basically the title of that talk. So they put me onto a circuit. For example, I'm leaving next week. I'll actually be in eastern Washington speaking at cities all over the eastern side of the state. I think I'm doing 15 talks over the course of 12 days. So it's been a wonderful way for me to meet people from all over the state of Washington. And as part of my talk, of course, I ask for people in the audience if they have stories that they'd like to share uh, with the rest of us. By creating sort of a safe environment, I get a lot of people who have stories that oftentimes start out with, I really haven't told the story very often, or you know, something happened to me a long time ago, but I've kept it under wraps. In other words, they're actually coming forward. In a way, it feels like an AA meeting or something like that to get all these testimonies from people. But it's also been an eye-opener for me because I realize if there are that many people who have stories, but haven't really reported them to the BFRO website or what have you. Uh, you know, the number of encounters must be way larger than what we have thought it was previously. Yeah, and, you know, have, having, you know, done a few of these locally recently, and obviously you got more uh, down, coming down the road here, have, have, how has the turnout been, and, and uh, how have you been received uh, in, a, in a positive matter, negative? I mean, how has the turnout been? Oh, you know what? I get a very positive response to my programs, which is nice. And also, usually I have, like, record crowds. If I'm doing programs at a public library, for example, I'm usually watching as they're, like, scurrying around trying to find more chairs. So wow. they, you know, the, the attendance far exceeds what they were anticipating, which, you know, is gratifying for me. But also, again, it just kind of amazes me how much interest there is in this topic now than there was, oh, say, 20 years ago when I was working on that other book. And, and with the, the, the individuals attending uh, these uh, speaking arrangements, these free events, uh, are most of them just curious about the subject, or, or are there a lot of individuals that have actually had uh, encounters? You, you did mention that you do have people come forward, but, you know, is it like a yeah. 50-50 crowd or, a, you know? Well, I'd say most people are just fascinated by the subject itself. And usually when I do show up at a small library, uh, whether it's in the San Juan Islands or way the way up by uh, the eastern border of the state, um, there are people that have basically heard about it through newsletters or what have you uh, a month in advance. So they're like, we could hardly wait for you to come and, you know, fill us in on what's going on. And But within that group, there's also a large percentage, I would say not 50-50, but there certainly are enough people in there that have had these firsthand experiences or know people who have. And also within that group, there are people who have made it their hobby or their, you know, sideline to really study on this. I always feel like people in the audience may know more than I do. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's funny, Gunnar, Gunnar Monson and myself, we were actually, uh, we, we heard you uh, were going to be in the area speaking and we were going to try to make one of your, your speaking engagements. Unfortunately, we are we are a bit of you know as a you know a hobby obviously, but uh, we are active field investigators. We do do a lot of 
our own kind of um, field research and whatnot, and, and uh, it just co- you know the timing was not perfect, but uh, hopefully yeah. down the road we, we will get a chance to to uh, listen to you. I'm very I'm fascinated by what you're doing, and and I know that you're a big proponent of you know I guess uh, you know citizen science and and, and collecting you know the, the, using the scientific method I would say uh, is that kind of correct to uh, say. Yeah, well, you know, a large part of my talk is about the fact that, you know, everyone in the audience could be trained to gather data. You don't have to be the expert, you know, the official primatologist or physiologist or what have you, uh, but you do need to be able to gather data in a consistent and accurate way so it can be shared with experts, you know, people who really know what they're looking at. And citizen science itself is a fairly new term but it's actually become uh, widespread in the government, and a lot of universities run this too. Uh, a good example of citizen science, Cornell uh, University up in upstate New York, they do citizen science programs for bird research. And some of that could be as easy as observing the action at your bird feeder in your backyard. If you look out there at the same time every day and then just do an observation of what what the diversity of birds that are out there will be. If thousands of people are doing that, now if someone gets all that data, they can analyze it, and they can actually go, well, it was a great year. This last year was a great year for for songbirds, but it was a terrible year for finches or something to that effect. They can look for all these trends. Normally, you know, if you go back a few years before people got invested in this, it would be a matter of hiring some specialist paying them pretty good salaries to go out and do those observations themselves. So now you have this great, uh, you know, way of amassing accurate data, especially if you've trained people beforehand uh, through a weekend workshop or whatever and get all sorts of good information. And I guess my point as it pertains to the Sasquatches, the more sets of eyes and ears that are out there gathering that information in a consistent and, uh, you know, a credible way, then that's way better than, you know, just having one guy go out and be the expert in in this field, gather data and keep it to themselves. And and what you think do you think that uh in regards to you know enthusiast, enthusiasts and, and and you know so-called active researchers and whatnot, do you think one of the main issues uh, perhaps why we've not gone further along in in the research or any really uh, significant discoveries is the lack of, of trained uh, citizens or those that actually feel the need to to actually um, you know take uh, uh, some classes in, in, in um, trying to basically learn how to, to be a field investigator and, and get to know your known animals and and uh, how to track and all that. Do you think that's been an issue? Uh, yes, you, that definitely you think, has yeah. been. Because you know what, I have to say, first of all, when I when I first got interested in this topic in the 1990s, um, you know, I would talk to people and they'd say, well, we had some Sasquatch hair samples and we sent them off to a lab. And then I'd go, well, that's great. What did you find out? And they'd say, well, we never heard back from them. You know, it was like a warning, warning sign number one. But then they would also I'd say, well, why didn't you send some more samples off to a different lab? And they said, well, we'd use them all up. So that's just like sloppy science all over the place. And whatever could have been, you know, gleaned from that information was totally lost. It was very frustrating for me to talk to people with that story. And I actually heard that story uh, a couple of times in my, you know, my gathering research. Of course, we would know now the last thing you want to do is use up all of your specimen so the evidence no longer exists, let alone, you know, lose chain of custody as a, well, who has that sample and what were the results that no one could point to, uh, well, here it is and or here it went or what have you. That was just sloppy science, and it made me really want to get some better trained people out there who could gather that information and know what to do with it. That's really the main focus of my book. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, you know, one of the things I find to be uh, interesting when it comes to Individuals I, I like to uh, follow and and look to uh, is skepticism. You know, I'm I'm very skeptical of a lot of the evidence uh, thrown out there. I'm not so skeptical of the existence of Sasquatch. Uh, far from that, but I'm very skeptical of a lot of the evidence put forth. 
found, uh, especially when it's thrown about so easily on, on some of these social uh, forums. Uh, how, how important is it to have a, a skeptical mind, to be a, a skeptic and to look at things skeptically? Well, you know, a skeptic, that's a word that's sort of charged. It makes it sound like you're a grouch, basically. <laughs> you know, I'm a skeptic on this. But it's also about being discerning. And some things are obvious, you know, gaffes. In fact, there are a lot of fakes. Anytime someone comes up with a fake, like that gentleman in Texas who purportedly shot a Sasquatch and was taking it on tour, as soon as someone realizes that's a fake, it sort of sets back the whole effort to really resolve this, you know, mystery, sets it back a really big way because then the people are more likely to tune it out. Um, but there's also just a lot of misunderstanding. Even that famous Patterson-Gimlin film footage has a lot of kind of sticky wickets about it that makes, if you're a skeptic or a discerning viewer, it's going to make you kind of wonder about the validity of it. Uh, the documentation on it is not good. And if they actually had better documentation, it probably would be looked at with more uh, a more serious fine-tuned eye than it currently is. David Gunner here. Um, what are some of the, the techniques uh, that citizen scientists could use that you advise people to use when collecting, um, documenting their, their research? Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because actually in my book, I talk about all different kinds of evidence you could be getting. Everything from, you know, the proverbial footprints and footprint casts to uh, audio recordings or video or film, whatever. Um, but also eyewitness testimony. And then probably the real one is keeping your own journal or your own log of what you saw. Too many I realize when you're, you know, out in the woods, you come face to face with a, a 10 foot tall being covered with long hair. Your first re reaction is not going to be, I got to get my notebook and write this down because you'd be freaking out. Right. But as soon as that, initial freak out has passed, you really need to write down pretty much everything you noted about the encounter. And that might even include details like what the weather was like, what the time of day, of course, things like a GPS, where it happened, stuff that's not that difficult, but also gets oftentimes gets lost in the telling uh, later on. People forget details like, did you hear other animals? Were there birds chirping or was it suddenly quiet? All that kind of detail, if you actually take the time to log that in, you're actually now creating a more uh, helpful report rather than, well, I kind of jokingly call people in my book, uh, people who are the sort of the I seen them people. They can say I seen them, but they can't tell you much more than that. So Which there's is, lots of it, techniques buried throughout my book in the, the manuscript of my book. Which is true. It's the more information that someone gathers around their uh, Bigfoot encounter. Otherwise, it's just an anecdotal story that, That's right. that uh, it, it makes makes for good campfire fodder, but doesn't necessarily... Um, we talk a lot about, about uh, creating predictability. So taking data points and, and putting them together and, and what there's... If you have the more information you have in that that report the more it leads you to uh, some some level of predictability, time of year, location, weather, you know, what, what uh, yeah, were there people other have, people? If, yeah. people? if people have enough of that information, they can start looking for trends. It's amazing to me, right. for example, so many people report a foul smell, but then some people don't report that at all. So what does that tell us? Well, if we actually we're able to correlate that to something else, even wind direction. That might help us out understanding what we're actually catching. Maybe it's a male thing. Maybe it's a, you know, something that males do, but females don't, or maybe it's young versus adults. We just don't have a correlation for that. So we can't really make much of an educated guess there. The other thing I talk about in my book that I think is really important is chain of custody. And if you watch those crime you know, crime scene investigator shows on television, they're always mm -hmm. being very careful of what they do with the evidence and logging where it is. So at each step of the way, you know 
who actually possesses the evidence, if it's been altered in any way, you know, we, we, we put it in ethanol to preserve it or what have you. You need to know all that, and you need to be able to trace where it's been at all times so there isn't any question of, well, was this evidence tampered with or substituted entirely? And that's something that is very rarely done, but really should be done with anything you find. Mm-hmm. David, are you seeing a trend uh, with individuals that are actively researching the subject, uh, trying to educate themselves and become better uh, investigators? Yes, I think that is true. And also, you know, it's interesting, and you alluded to this earlier, because of the Internet, it's not a question of people all gathering at a physical location once a year for a conference and exchanging information. People can do that on a daily or an hourly basis now on the Internet. So any of these sort of super sites where people share information or their own theories or what have you, those are really valuable. And that's really helping people become more uh, active participants. There's also what I refer to in my book. Uh, actually, this came from Lauren Coleman, if you know him. He's a, he's a, he has a cryptozoology museum in Maine. And he, he says there's actually a phenomenon going on called cryptotourism instead of like ecotourism where people go to these, you know, habitats way out of the middle of nowhere to look at. I don't know. I'm just going to pick an animal. The, the panda in China, for example, uh, now people are actually going to places where there are famous sites, whether it's Ape Canyon uh, on Mount St. Helens or Bluff Creek in Cal- Northern California or whatever they saw on uh, a TV show the week before. Let's make that a trip and go on that trip. And so there's actually a lot of people who are now active participants in gathering data. It's not just a handful of people who were, uh, you know, have made a name for themselves by tra- trying to track uh, Sasquatch down. Mm-hmm. And David, having been involved with, with this subject for over 20 years, what are some of the major, uh, what have you seen changed over, uh, whether good or bad, in, in over the last, say, 20 years um, in, in, you know, involving this Bigfoot subject, whether it's research or whatever have you? Well, it sort of cracks me up because I don't think, considering the interest and the growing interest, there's really been a corresponding uh, amassing of data. We don't really have that much new to say that wasn't said in my book that was published in 92. In fact, if you go back and find this, I love this book. It's a Washington Environmental Atlas. It was published by the Army Corps of Engineers uh, with help from the University of Washington's Environmental Studies Program. Uh, That talks about Sasquatch. Now, in the book, when you actually read it, the atlas, it says they use a lot of qualifiers. They say this animal is alleged to be or said to be or supposedly dot, dot, dot. So they're not just flat out saying it exists. That's still a question. But they say at the end of it, well, with more and more people moving into the state of Washington and more access to the outdoors, it's only a matter of time before we'll be able to resolve this question of whether this being exists or not. Well, that that atlas came out in the 1970s. So 45 years ago, they're saying it's only a matter of time. Well, that matter of time has been 45 years, and we still don't have a lot of basic information about this, this entity. So it's time to get some new information. Uh, Over time, I have seen some growth in the amount of audio recordings and some blurry photographs and a lot more authoritative press or publications, but a lot of it's still conjecture, and we don't really have that much data to hang our hats on. Yeah, a lot of it is, uh, unfortunately, still to this date, a lot of it is conjecture, uh, and, uh, and, and there's not... There, I believe there are some things you could take away from some of the things that have come forward, uh, uh, some of the, the, the track casting audio and a few other nuggets. But overall, uh, it's a lot of conjecture. And uh, do you think with the uh, Bigfoot really in the last, I don't know, 10 years has it, gone really mainstream, especially with shows like uh, Finding Bigfoot and some of the other uh, shows out there, um, a lot more radio shows are talking about this subject. And you do have, you know, 
Facebook and and Instagram and Twitter. That, you know, you got these groups uh, forming. Um, do you think Bigfoot kind of being mainstream uh, and some of these TV shows? Do you think that's a, a positive thing, or do you think it's it's been a bit of a negative thing? Well, I think it's a positive thing overall because I'll tell you one thing: people love to have a mystery. And we kind of like to think that we know it all. We've already discovered everything. People are discovering all sorts of stuff about the natural world, uh, you know, uh, today that was un- previously unknown. You know, we always talk about how the, the cryptid of yesteryear is the commonplace of today. A lot of zoo animals, the, uh, the mountain gorilla, for example, or the okapi, uh, were not even recognized by science in the early 1800s. So we're learning more and more, but people do like to have that something to go after. And partly I think it's because people need to have a wild spirit of the woods, something we've had for a long, long, long time in our own culture, a belief in the, whether it's the green man or the Yeti or you name it. Um, people like to have that mystery. And because of our natural curiosity, we want to go out and resolve it. So, yeah, I do believe that our interest in kind of making this a totemic figure, and certainly in the Northwest, um, I think it's a healthy thing. I think it's going to lead to some real understanding, not only of the Sasquatch, but also of ourselves, that what's our place in the natural world. Well, I agree with you, David, that that uh, and the, the other shows, uh, Monster Quest and such, have done a good job to raise the awareness of the topic in in the mind of the general public I was from the era when when uh like in search of was was a big deal on tv and that that oh yeah engaged me in in my interest in the subject as a kid um the the mystery of bigfoot as you say is is one of the thing I think the big drivers to people that it is to me, how as someone who has a scientific mind, how do you think that it's possible that that a creature like this could have eluded um, documentation, you know, confirmation of their existence for this long, especially with the, you yeah. know the 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 technology and stuff that exists today. Yeah, no, it's a puzzlement for me, particularly when they have remote cameras showing pictures of, uh, well, I saw recently one that was a snow leopard from the Himalayan mountains with its cubs. And, you know, there's an entire book searching for the snow leopard where the guy doesn't even see one. And here's, you know, um, a mother nursing its its litter of of kittens, basically, snow leopard uh, kittens. So it's surprising to me that we don't have more information but on the other hand, one of my favorite stories concerns the grizzly bear in the North Cascades Mountains of uh, Washington State. There was a theory that grizzlies, which had been exterminated in Washington, were now coming back into the state from British Columbia to the north. So they sent a team of field biologists. I think they were, you know, several field biologists out to the North Cascades, and they observed for over the course of five years, they looked for grizzlies. And during that time, they found footprints. They found um, claw marks on trees. They found scat. They found all this uh, so-called secondary evidence that there were indeed grizzlies coming down into Washington State. But they never saw an actual grizzly during that entire study. Five years. So if a creature like that grizzly, which is a pretty large animal to begin with, and you'd think would be crashing its way through the forest, if that could elude humans, then an even larger and much smarter creature like the Sasquatch could probably do an even better job of that. Yeah, one, one would assume. <laughs> in that, you, you know, know we say, we say in, in critical thinking, which is something I talk about a lot, in thinking like a good scientist, the absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of an absence. In other words, just because we don't have physical proof that something exists doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. David, are you an active? Do you actively go out and do any field study or field research? I know you're you're very uh, a big proponent of nature and, and 
and and whatnot and documentation and 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 whatnot. But do you actively go out and actually do any um, field investigations, or do you do you do any uh, interview um, uh, interview any eyewitnesses, anything of that nature? You know, I don't actually. To tell you the truth, I love going out in nature, and I'm out in the outdoors a lot. I haven't seen as so much as a footprint or the suspiciously broken branch of a tree during that time, but I informally have talked to lots and lots of people over the years who have been gathering information or who have had, you know, face-to-face encounters. Um, so I have to, at this point, be satisfied with that. Mm-hmm. And, and with in regards to some of these these individuals that have been, you know, uh, active researching. And, and you've spoken with and probably collaborated with as well. I would imagine people like Peter Byrne. Um, you know, uh, do you, do you uh, still to this day uh, talk with a lot of these uh, researchers and keep in touch with them? You know, I have to tell you something which I think is actually, in retrospect, kind of humorous, but certainly is true. Um, when I was working on my book in the early 1990s, there was an organization called the International Society of Cryptozoology. It no longer exists. But at that time, that was pretty much the organization that people went to with all manner of things, not just, you know, Bigfoot or Yeti or Loch Ness Monster, but also things like the Anza, which is a a large cat, like a puma-like cat from Mexico. All these people who were doing those studies were all kind of under this umbrella organization, uh, the ISC. And the head of the ISC at that time told me to avoid contact and dealing with Sasquatch scholars because they are a very contentious lot. There's a lot of arguing and bickering and I want to be first and all that sort of very kind of unscientific uh, but emotional approaches to the subject. Excuse me. So I've always made a point of really trying to zone in on more about about literature review. Excuse me. I've got to clear my throat. Mm-hmm. <coughs> All right. There have been a lot. I do a lot more. I like to see things in writing, in other words, so that people don't go back and say, "Well, I didn't exactly say that. I said this." So I'm actually, I've actually up until quite recently again, kind of kept away from a lot of the active seekers and been more prone to following their stuff in literature or in journals or what have you. Uh, only recently did I actually write a note to the BFRO saying, hey, I'd like to talk with you all. Mm-hmm. And over the years, uh, over the years, uh, having done all, you know, these speak engagements and some of these lectures, uh, I imagine you had, like you mentioned before, you've had individuals come forward and share a story. Are there any particular uh, stories that were shared with you in regards to encounters that you just found really um, either compelling or of, of a high interest? <clears throat> Well, I'd say all of the stories are interesting to me, and some of them are actually kind of revealing. Um, But the thing that's most interesting to me is the nature of the people who come forward and and have these stories. A lot of them are experienced outdoors people. They're not not just people who could have mistaken a bear or an elk or something for what, what they're seeing because they know what a bear or an elk looks like. And a lot of them are, you know former, uh, let's say, survival training people or what have you, who really know their stuff. I think it's also important to realize that these people who tell these stories, it's not like they're trying to get on TV or uh, write a book or, you know, cash in on their experiences. If anything, they're actually opening themselves up to a lot of possibility for ridicule from, you know, their neighbors or relatives or what have you. So they're kind of risking a lot by telling these stories and not really gaining much. You know, I'm sure there are people who go, oh, wow, that's cool. But for every one of them, they're sort of like, you're nuts. <laughs> so <laughs> so I think it's really more it's more important to realize it's the telling of the stories and who's telling them than the actual story itself. Uh, though to be more specific, I've heard all sorts of stories. Some people seem to claim that they're like in psychic contact with this creature. You know, there's one theme I've heard a lot of is I I was feeling sad and I was out sitting in the back of my pickup truck crying because my mother had just passed away or whatever. And all of a sudden this thing came out of the woods and it seemed to know I was suffering. 
I've heard that story several times. Then I've also had people go, you know, you're nuts if you think this thing has, you know, humanitarian instincts. It's actually stalking you, and it, if it had its druthers, it would kill you and eat you. So, you know, my the stories I get are from all over the map, in other words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, across board. But uh, it is something you mentioned earlier. Uh, one of the things I, I like about the setting in, in some of the, these, these free events is, uh, you know, uh, I would imagine a lot of individuals do come forward uh, that probably won't, wouldn't come forward in any other form or fashion um, and, and, and do share a story. And for, you know, everyone told, always, I always wonder for every story shared how many are not uh, shared, uh, how many more uh, encounters or stories are out there. Uh, it, it's got to be uh, quite a number. Oh, yeah, I think that's really true. And if uh, anything, it's kind of, well, it to me, it's the biggest single piece of evidence. I was actually reading another book on this topic recently that said the same thing. Um, a lot of the footprints that we find in the footprint casts, a lot of them can be kind of done away with as fakes. You know, someone cut out a, pair of extra large feet and strapped them onto their shoes and went stomping around in, in the mud. In fact, I think the, the, there was a deathbed confession about the footprints that were discovered that actually led to the term Bigfoot. So a large percentage of those can be done away with. Um, there are some that just flat out can't. They have, you know, things like dermal ridges, those little fingerprint-like markings in them or or that show such a sophisticated degree, understanding of sort of the flexion, how a foot moves, uh, that they it's not a matter of putting plywood on your shoes. Uh, but overall, it's actually the, I think it's the eyewitness reports and their similarities that really probably hold the biggest promise for actually resolving what this thing is. Mm-hmm. And with uh, some of these people that have come forward and shared experiences, and, and maybe even some of the ones you've, um, you know, uh, read over the years, uh, I know you touched upon this a little bit, but uh, you have you seen any sort of trend in some of these stories other than what you mentioned that you maybe you, you think there may be something to it, or uh, they're just across the board in general? Well, I haven't really seen that trend per se. I know I've read articles also in journals about how our, de- how our depiction of Sasquatch has evolved over the years. And the early, early reports made this thing sound much more ape-like and smaller. And then over time, it's kind of become more uh, Neanderthal-like, more large, primitive human-like, and much larger. So there actually is people, somebody has been tracking over the, you know, over the century how that, our vision of what Sasquatch is has changed. And I can't really account for that other than, you know, I look at these pictures of what during the the golden era of exploration in the 1500s, people are coming back with all these fanciful drawings of what a rhinoceros looked like or what an elephant like looked like, you know, for people who had never seen one. So maybe those really early uh, depictions were by people who really couldn't put it into the form of what it's, what it, we now think it looks like. I actually, when I, I tell you, when the when my book, The Sasquatch Seekers Field Manual, came out, um, while I was working on it, I was really kind of trying the, to get the publisher to not include a picture of what Sasquatch looked like because you're already kind of biasing what people are going to see. In other words, it looks just like that picture, and I didn't want that to happen. So on the cover of my book, I have a giant foot, but eventually they did go, and actually there is a drawing, a pretty nice composite drawing of what people say they're seeing uh, in the book. And I'm a little dismayed. For all we know, it could be like an armadillo with uh, with human-like feet. Mm-hmm. You know, David, for for uh, for for an individual that would be uh, attending one of your speaking engagements, uh, what should they expect, and what is the, the one thing that you want them to take away uh, having listened to you speak? You know, the real point of my talks is to engage dialogue. That's what Humanities Washington wants. In other words, after I'm done talking, now there's lots of this. not been a problem for me. It's been more of a problem like the library needs to use this room. We have to get out of here. Can you all <laughs> stop for a little while? Um, 
so a large part of what I consider the real payoff for my talks is what happens after I'm done speaking and other people in the audience bring up their stuff. And I've even had people come to my talks with footprint casts, either ones that they've made or copies of some of the sort of famous impressions that they found. Um, all, certainly all those stories are great. Sometimes people pass around photographs of footprints they've seen in the snow. So there's a lot of, it's sort of like a, a coming together of a lot of like-minded people. That's a highlight to me. But as far as the actual talk goes, what I really want people to get is the basic tenets of science so that they understand why some things are more acceptable in the sort of the scientific framework than others. I had a reviewer of my book say that my book was like hiding vegetables in your meatloaf so your kids would eat vegetables. And I really liked that a lot because they were saying, they were alluding to the fact that there was a lot of scientific thought and theory within this book about Sasquatch. People wouldn't might not ordinarily be reading about, you know, the basic idea of creating a hypothesis and proving it. If it was just a book on the hypothesis, but once it's a book about the Sasquatch, they're getting it whether they knew it or not. One one of the trends I've seen over well, a rather short span, and maybe you can you can um, clarify this or, or or add to it. But one of the things I've noticed is uh, individuals uh, really um, adding a lot of paranormal aspects to the Sasquatch phenomena. Is there a place for that, or is that something you've seen grown? grow in nature over the years, or has that always been around? Yeah, I would say that is a relatively new thing. I can't really say with absolute certainty when that when that thought form began. But, you know, very early on, I started talking to, I mean, on the second project, I started talking to people who would say, you know, have you noticed there's a correlation between UFO sightings and Sasquatch sightings? And then, you know, my response was, there is? That was news to me. I've even had people tell me with a high degree of certainty that these, what we call Sasquatches are actually creatures from other planets and that, you know, they think we're really ridiculous for describing them the way we do as big hairy apes. So, yeah, that, that's something that seems to be growing. One of the things that I've learned on this circuit with giving these talks through Humanities Washington uh, Eastern Washington has got a very large record of Sasquatch sightings. And I think when I wrote the book in 1992, I was really focusing more on Western Washington and British Columbia, like the Olympic Peninsula, the Olympic rainforest. So it was surprising to me to go to areas like the Palouse in Eastern Washington, which is mostly grasslands, and have all these people with stories and the you know native tales and what have you from that area. Uh, also within that group, there's what I call, pardon the expression, new age rednecks. And these are people who are actually on all you know immediate impressions. They're truck driving guys with with uh, truck driver hats and shirts with snaps on them. They're ranchers basically. And in actuality, you know, they're very into UFOs and Sasquatch and crystal rock medicine and ancestral wisdom and all that. Uh, one person actually explained to me a lot of the people, if you go back to the 1960s, who were really into the back to the land movement, bought land in eastern Washington and have been living there for the last, whatever, 40 or 50 years. So I, they were like, you shouldn't be surprised by that. But as far as the demographic goes, that was a new one on me, and I really appreciate their insight. Well, fantastic, David. When, where is your uh, your next uh, speaking uh, engagement going to be held at, and and uh, uh, you know what's the date and, and the, the place of the venue? Well, actually, I'm going to have to look at my calendar, but hang on one second. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. I actually am giving a talk this very uh, weekend in Bellevue, Washington, which is just a suburb of Seattle. But in March, when I go off on my big trip and uh, spend 12 days in eastern Washington, I'm going to be in Winthrop, which is in eastern Washington, uh, OMAC, Okanagan, Grand Coulee, Pateros, Soap Lake, a long list, Chelan, 
Wenatchee, Kashmir, Tenasket, and I'm ending up all the way up in the Republic, which is practically at the Canadian border in the most um, northeasternmost corner of the state. Mm. Wow. And uh, some of these places got... are big. Wenatchee is a big city, but some of them, I've given talks where, as in libraries, for example, where the population of the town is 250 people. And I still managed to get 50 people there. So it's a it's yeah. a big draw these programs. Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, those sort of numbers to me are mind boggling. I mean, that's that's fantastic. I, it, it actually excites me that there's a, even in small towns there's an interest, um, uh, and to get a turnout like that is fantastic. Uh, you know, so I'm you know hopefully uh, I'm hoping to make it out to one of your uh, your speaking engagements here, and we'll definitely. Uh, uh, I, I found you to be a very uh, you have to fascinating. Tell me where are you located? I'm where, actually where located. Where are you located? Yeah, I actually live in um, Belfair, Washington, not too far away from Bellevue, really. Oh yeah, okay. Because I'm also giving yeah. a talk in Gig Harbor, Washington, which is not far from you. No. And Chehalis, and I don't know. I have a bunch of them. Humanities Washington has been a great godsend for me because they actually pay me to give these talks, so I don't have to be putting the bite on a small library, for example. And the mm-hmm. small libraries can actually apply for, you know, to have me come out and speak, but they can even apply for uh, sort of grants to help cover my travel expenses. So it's been a wonderful, uh, it's a two-year stint, and I'm in the second year of it right now, but it's been a wonderful way to get out there and actually meet the people who ought to know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's—I mean—fantastic resource there, and uh, I'm glad you're getting around. I mean, you're all over the place. Uh, you're right. Gig Harbor is right down the road for me, and I'm always by Chehalis. Uh, uh, I have friends out that way, um, but uh, hopefully, folks can make it out to one of your your speaking engagements here and uh, and get to hear what you have to say. Uh, it sounds fascinating. Where can uh, where can folks find um, your book? Oh, you can find the Sasquatch. Seekers Field Manual at bookstores, of course. It's only a few years old, but also through places like Amazon.com, so you can order it online, or any of these larger booksellers, Barnes and Noble. And I've seen it in all sorts of places, including the drive-through tree in in Oregon. <laughs> Their gift shop <laughs> has a copy of that book, so that was a good thing to see. Do you have any other books, David, that that uh, you've written on other topics? Yeah, I've actually written a total of 20 books over my lifetime. Some of them are right. skinny, like the like Field Guide to the Sasquatch. Others are kids. Some of them are kids' books, and some of them are feature-length books. Probably the ones that have got, gotten me the most attention, the one that got me the most publicity, and continue to. It's called the Eat a Bug Cookbook, and it's a book about cooking with insects. Delicious. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, you know, everything from little termites and ants all the way up to tarantula spiders. David, is there a website that people can go in and uh, find out where you're speaking? You know, you can see my full catalog if you go to my website, which is just my name, davidgeorgegordon.com. I recently started a Facebook page called Sasquatch Seekers, and that's really devoted to log. It's kind of my own little little uh, blog devoted to my travels for Humanities Washington. So either of those would be a good way to find out what's going on. But my calendar page on my own website, davidgeorgegordon.com, will certainly tell you the most. There you go. So if you're looking to catch one of... Uh, David's lectures, you can uh, go to his website, David George. I'm sorry, what was the last part? Oh, DavidGeorgeGordon.com. Gordon. So get, go check it out. I know that I'm going to try and uh, catch one before the year is out. David, we appreciate you uh, joining us here on Monster X today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we sign off? Well, I just want to say, you know, keep keep your eyes open. It's amazing to me when I sold my book to Mountaineers Press, to Mountaineers Books, when I actually pitched it to them and they liked it, 
I explained that even if you went out in the woods and you didn't see anything remotely close to a Sasquatch or its footprints or anything, fecal matter, you'd still get more out of your trip by having a focus and by keeping open eyes and an open mind and knowing how to record it. So that's the thing. I'd say go out there and see what you see. You might find uh, birds that people thought it was no longer in this area or plants that people thought it'd become extinct, all sorts of stuff. I've talked to people who have who have done both of those things. So I just want to close by saying keep your eyes open, and, yes, the truth is out there. Thank you, David, for joining us, buddy. Uh, again, look up uh, – DavidGeorgeGordon.com to find out where uh, David's speaking next. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Monster X Radio. This is Gunnar Monson. I want to thank our guest, David George Gordon, and my co-host, Shane Corson. Until then, keep it squatchy. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you for joining Monster X Radio.